Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. This is our third episode, and I hope you all had a Merry Christmas, Happy Holiday, Happy Kwanzaa, whatever it is that you celebrate. But let's get into it today if we can. Um, We want to entertain you here. That's the purpose of this. Give you something to do on this Christmas weekend. Now, we're going to start with some current events, if we can, at the beginning. And one thing that's really been driving me crazy is this Kamala Harris, vice president. She's really been pretty much a disaster since day one, I would say, since she became vice president, swept in with Joe Biden. And now she's complaining that she's being held to a different standard in the press and from Republicans because of her race and gender. So she's not just playing the race card. She's actually playing the gender card as well. I mean, she's really maxing out here. Now, she didn't come out and say this, of course. It wasn't her that came out and made these complaints because that would be too vulgar. So, of course, what she had is she had uh, her enablers roll this out, including Hillary Clinton, to complain to the press. And basically anything to salvage this train wreck of a woman in time for the 2024 election, because presumably Joe Biden I mean, he's barely alive and competent as, as it is, but you have to assume that in the two or three years, there's no way that he'll be able to run for president because he's simply too old and, and feeble. So they're already starting at the end of 2021, years in advance, to try to shore up her position, her role, so that she can become president after Biden drops out. Now, one of the other people that came in to act on her behalf, speak for her, is is Biden's press secretary, Jen Psaki, who I consider to be just the personification of, of, of all things bad, ginger, evil, all of it wrapped up into one disgusting package. Now, what she said is, one of the things I really admire about the vice president, as if there's anything to admire about her, is the fact that she's the first African-American woman, woman of color, Indian-American woman to serve in this job, first woman. I mean, so many firsts, right? It's, it's a lot to have on your shoulders. Well, here's my thought when I heard that. I was unaware that she was African-American. I mean, I, I don't mean to be so stupid, so ignorant, but it was my understanding that her mom was from India and her dad is Jamaican. So what continent is India in? It's in Asia, for anybody who's scratching their head. And what continent is Jamaica in? It's North America. So where does the Africa part come in? I mean, look, again, I could be completely ignorant and wrong here. I'm sure you'll write in, uh, let me know if I'm wrong, but I don't see it. I see her as as half Indian, half Jamaican. I wasn't aware this was African-American, but apparently she is. I was unaware. Regardless, the only reason that she's in the job now as vice president, the only reason she was picked was to check off the minority and the women boxes because Biden felt that he needed that on his ticket to win the election last year. If you recall, she was absolutely horrific as a Democratic candidate for president. She was horrible. She was a high-profile candidate to start, and she dropped out almost a year before the election. And if you remember reading, there was huge turmoil behind the scenes in in her campaign. That was what was reported. She accused Joe Biden of being a racist. Did you forget that? During the primaries, I think she was wagging her finger and telling him not to go there and 
And, you know, and then she said that he was a racist. And the words that were described about her campaign was no discipline, no plan, no strategy. Now, does that sound familiar at all? I, I would think that it probably does. Pretty much sounds about the same type of criticism that she's getting now. As I said, she started out at the tops of the polls when she initially announced her run for president. And within months, as I said, she was out. Just a horrible candidate. So now she's complaining that she's being unfairly criticized because she's black. So she's got that race card when it's hilarious because she's using black America sort of as a shield to protect her. That's what she's doing. But let's remember, blacks in California, they hated her guts. And when she ran for president, she learned that blacks all over America don't like her. So she's using her race to defend her herself against her very own incompetence. But she screwed blacks her entire life. And it's sort of how I remember how it was with OJ. OJ Simpson, when he gets arrested for cutting off his wife's head and, and Ron Goldman killing him as well. This was a guy that came, you know, from the projects. He was in a gang. And once he became a great football star at USC and then in the NFL with the Buffalo Bills, he really tried to clean up his act and he wanted to leave that whole past behind him. And he became a very safe black person. He was trying desperately to market himself in the white community so he could get commercials, which he did. And he was a real crossover star. He was in movies as well. As soon as he got arrested for lopping off, his wife said, all of a sudden, black, 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 black. All of a sudden, now he remembered that he was black. And it's sort of the same thing with Kamala Harris because she really shit all over blacks when she was a prosecutor. Let's remember, she assumed that she was going to get the black vote when she ran, as I said, in the Democratic primaries. And why is it that the blacks didn't like her? Well, she was a prosecutor in California for 27 years. And while blacks made up 6% of the state's population, 29% five times as many in terms of percentage are in California jails. So 29% of California jails are filled with black people, but they only make up 6% of the state. She referred to herself as the top cop of California. She was so proud of putting people in jail. And you know, what else did she do besides that? Well, as San Francisco's district attorney, she also charged, criminalized, and imprisoned black parents if their children regularly miss school. This is how sick she is. Once she became attorney general in 2011, this is in California, she persuaded the state legislature to adopt harsher penalties for truancy. Under the new law, parents of a truant child could be fined $2,500 or more or face one year in jail. At her attorney general inauguration, Harris said, quote, if you fail in your responsibility to your kids, we're going to go, we're going to work to make sure you face the full force and consequence of the law. But, you know, you got to remember locking up the parents, you know, you know, it, it, all that ends up doing is just putting more people in jail, puts more blacks in jail. It doesn't address the root cause of why the students may be missing out on school in the first place, but she didn't care. All she cared about was putting people in jail because she thought that would help her. As district attorney in California, over 8,000 people were arrested for marijuana charges in seven years when she was in charge. 8,000. 
Almost 2,000 of those arrested were imprisoned. So she's putting people in jail for marijuana. During an interview in February 2019, right after she entered the presidential race, Harris did that, you know, that nervous, crazy, insane, bunny-boiling cackle that she has. She laughed as she admitted to smoking weed herself when she was in college. So it's okay for her to smoke pot, but if you get involved in marijuana in California, you're going to jail, says Kamala Harris. In California, she also supported the three strikes law. It's known as the habitual offender law, and she opposed reforming it. The three strikes law, if you don't know, is when an individual is sentenced to life in prison after they are convicted of three crimes. That law passed in California in 1994. By 2001, 50,000 people had been sentenced under the law, and about 12,000 prisoners were facing a minimum of 25 years in prison. Didn't make a difference how minor that third strike was. Under this law, blacks were imprisoned at a rate 12 times higher than whites. Now, I'm not saying whether that's right or wrong necessarily. You can draw your own conclusions, but don't be going into the black community and say, hey, I deserve your vote. They hated her guts in California because of what she did. As California Attorney General, she fought to keep more people in prison so they could fight the wildfires out there. She pushed back against the federal order to expand an early parole program, arguing that it would deplete their stock of prison labor, which paid prisoners a dollar an hour or less. Nice, huh? So despite the fact that Harris called Biden a racist, when they were both running for the Democratic nomination, Biden, as I said, picked her as his VP due solely to the color of her skin and based on her gender. Because there's really no other reason to pick her. She was a horrible candidate. Everybody hates her. She laughs nervously every time she's pressed on any issue. But he needed the boxes checked. So what was the first thing he did, Biden? He made her the border czar. Okay, she was going to take care of the problems at the southern border. She did absolutely nothing. She accomplished nothing. She didn't even visit the border for months until the end of June 2021. Okay, after they're already in office for, I don't know, what's that, five months? And when she was asked about it, why don't you visit the border? You're the border czar. What did she do? She cackled because that's what she does. The president of Guatemala said he hadn't heard from Harris since she had visited Guatemala City last June. Hadn't heard from him. That's like what? Six months? Remember when she was going to Guatemala because she said she was going to find out the, the root causes of the continuing immigration crisis at the southern border? Well, it's almost January now. She still hasn't spoken to the, the head of Guatemala, and she still hasn't told us what the root causes are that's causing all these people to storm our southern border. Ever think this, that maybe she just sucks? She just sucks. And not because she's black or whatever. The reason she's getting bad press, it's not because she's a woman. It's because she sucks at her job. It's as simple as that. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to say it, but it's true. Now, according to data from U.S. Customs and Border Protection, America is experiencing the highest number of attempted illegal border crossings in 21 years. 1.7 million undocumented immigrants were apprehended attempting to enter the United States. From October 2020 to September of 21, that's an increase. Well, let's compare it to the year before. 400,000. It went from 400,000 to 1.7 million 
in the year later when Biden and the czar Kamala Harris were in charge. The number of immigrants in the country grew by 1.5 million between November of 2020 and November of this year. And that's after it declined by 1.2 million from February and September of 2020 as a result of Trump's COVID restrictions that he placed against immigration. So we had it going down 1.2 million to then growing by 1.5 million with Biden and the czar in charge. Now, you know why they're letting these people in. Don't be silly. They don't, they're not just completely incompetent. They want the illegals to come in. They're going to give them as much free shit as they can handle. And then guess what? They're going to get them in as, as citizens. And that means they can vote. And when they vote, who are they going to vote for? They're going to vote for the people that gave them all the free shit. And that's going to be the Democrats. So again, from October to November of 2021, just one month, the total immigrant population increased by 470,000 people. That's how many are coming to America from our southern border. Now, if you, if you look at Biden, he's completely confused. He, he keeps wearing this mask sometimes. You know, it's like theater to him. He takes it off in public. He puts it back on. There's no rhyme or reason when he wears it. He wears it outside when he's by himself. There's nobody within 50 yards of him. But meanwhile, five-year-old kids in New York have to wear the mask six hours a day straight in school. Biden keeps talking about this winter of death that's going to happen because of the Omicron variant. Winter of death. What a pleasant thing for the president to talk about. Forget that he doesn't mention that only a tiny fraction of people who are getting Omicron are dying compared to the previous variants. Now, while the administration implements vaccine mandates for federal workers, for federal contract workers, for healthcare workers, for anyone who works for a private business with over 100 employees. Well, you know, a mandate was never applied to those illegals that are crossing the southern border. Forget, forget the mandate to have vaccination. How about testing? How about test them when they come in? Where do you think they're coming from? They're coming from countries where they're not vaccinating these people at all. Now, under the current Biden administrative policies, as I said, there's no vaccine requirements for undocumented immigrants who are flooding our southern border. In, in September, this Jen Psaki, this ginger freak from hell, was asked about this double standard, and she's quoted as saying, well, undocumented immigrants don't need to comply because they are not intending to stay. That's what she said. How funny is that? So they come into America with COVID. They don't get tested, they don't get vaccinated, but it's okay because they don't intend to stay. I guess when they leave, they take the COVID with them and they don't spread it to anybody while they're here. You wonder why we're having so much COVID here. Ever think that maybe that's part of it? So Biden is blaming, of course, red state Americans for the increase in COVID cases. Again, I talked about this last week. He wouldn't dare blame blacks in America who are so lowly vaccinated very lowly, wouldn't dare do that because he needs their vote. So he can blame red state Americans because he knows he's never going to get their vote. He refuses to call out also the record number of undocumented immigrants that are coming into America from COVID hotspots who are untested, unvaccinated, and they're contributing to the spread of all the different dangerous variants of the virus. I don't know. Here's a thought. 
How about making them get vaccinated before releasing them into our communities? You've been reading about this, how they're coming in the, the dead of night into our communities. How about fucking vaccinating them first? Is that asking so much? It's bad enough that you're dumping illegals into our communities, increasing the crime rate. But how about getting them vaccinated? He's screaming about everybody else getting vaccinated. How about you do it? You force them. Make them. They want to stay here. They got to get vaccinated. He'll never do it, of course. As for Harris, again, back to Kamala Harris and her crying about how badly she's being abused in the media. Does she have any plan now that she's been in office? She's been the czar for nearly a year. Does she have any plan to stop the illegal immigrants from flowing across the border? Has there been any plan at all from her pie hole? Has anything come out of there but that imbecilic cackle? There's not a singular thought that's come out. And she is the border czar. So again, enough. I don't want to hear about how she's being unfairly treated. She's being treated completely fairly. The only reason she got the job was because of affirmative action. And she's failing miserably, which is why affirmative action doesn't always work. You're getting bad people for the job just based on the color of their skin or whatever genitalia they have. It's not working. Incredibly, as it sounds, God help us if something happens to Joe Biden. Not that I believe for a second that he's actually doing anything to run the country. I don't, I don't think he is. I think he's, he's too far gone. Now, we're going to take a short break here, and we're going to get back into some of the, the legal stories. I promised you the story about how El Chapo, Joaquin Guzman, came to hire me. That's a very interesting story. You're going to get it right after this break. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. I'm back, and we're here to talk about some law stories, some legal issues. But before I talk about the El Chapo story, I want to uh, discuss an issue that a listener wrote to me about, and it was referring to the bug that was put in the attorney-client conference room in the Raybrook prison where John Gotti Jr. was in 2003 and 2004, and he asked whether it was constitutional to bug these conversations. Now, we learned, this was about when he hired me in 2003, and his arraignment, we learned at John's arraignment, which was on July 30th, 2004, that the government had bugged 15 months of meetings between John and his then-attorney, Richard Raybach, at the Raybrook prison. The government had described Raybach as house counsel to the Gambino family at that arraignment. Now, this, of course, was news to us. We had no idea that they were bugging the attorney room, and it was really kind of a shocking thing. Raybach appeared with me at that arraignment as co-counsel for John. Now, you know, the first thought that came out was, my God, how can they bug attorney-client conversations? These conversations are privileged. So you had to think in your head that, you know, this had to be a pretty big deal for them to go this far to do this. Well, and as I said, as if a judge can be convinced uh, that the government had reason to believe that Raybach was engaging in criminal activity with John, passing messages from mobsters outside to John in prison, well, guess what? Then they could bug the room. Now, no offense to Richie Raybach, who I happen to like, but I had really no interest in having uh, him with me on the case, and I'll explain why. He had been convicted of tax evasion a few years earlier, and it was largely thought that he was mobbed up, so to speak, that he was just basically acting as a mob lawyer. And I didn't think it would be a good look for John, who our entire defense was that he had left the mafia. 
He had left the mafia and now all of a sudden he's going to be appearing with a lawyer who had, you know, purportedly, according to the government, mafia ties. So I just didn't think it made any sense. And his claim to fame at that point, again, was evading taxes on income that the government had accused him of receiving as John's lawyer. So John, as I said, did not really want the same old, same old mafia lawyers to represent him, which is how he came to me. He wanted new blood. And all of a sudden, I'm at the arraignment, and I've got Richie Raybach standing next to me. Now, at this time, this was like a very chaotic period when he hired me, and I'm standing at the arraignment. I was a very young lawyer at the time, and every lawyer in the city seemingly wanted to be on that case. I was the lead lawyer, but as you can imagine, everybody is whispering in John's ear, telling him God knows what. It was just very chaotic, and Richie is at the arraignment standing next to me, and he's bombastic, and he's loud, and he's acting like a central casting mob lawyer. And again, it's not the look that I was hoping for. And again, I like Richie. I want to make that clear. He's a decent guy. And I say that sincerely. If I didn't think he was decent, I would have no problem saying it. But at the same time, I was literally praying for a thunderbolt from the heavens to come and, and stop him from talking. And during this arraignment, all of a sudden, the government claims the thunderbolt comes the government claims that Raybach has a conflict, that he's been recorded on 15 months of bugged conversations in the Raybrook prison attorney-client room. And there's no way that he can stay on the case because the conflict is that he's not just going to be a, an attorney, but he's going to be a witness in the case as well because he's on tapes with John. So I'm listening to this and I'm like, my God, <laughs> there's the problem. It's gone. I've gotten rid of it. And the next thing I did when I heard that, because I think we were all stunned, is I asked Judge Shinlin about whether I was uh, recorded, whether I was bugged when I went to visit John. I didn't go with Raybach. I went by myself on other days, the handful of times that I went. And I asked the judge to make the prosecutor say in open court whether any of my conversations with John were bugged. And they indicated that the conversations were not bugged because they believed I was just there to discuss John's defense. And that was important to me because I didn't want my conversations where we talked about potential defenses to be in the government's possession. It would have been, un, un, you know, incredibly unfair and awful. So the appearance is over and it was just a simple appearance or should have been just a simple appearance for John to enter a not guilty plea. And after the appearance, Raybach is understandably you know, irate and he's screaming and yelling to the press about how unfair it is, how the government is overstepping its bounds and bounds and bugging lawyers and how awful. I have to literally pull him aside and say, listen, you got to stop talking. Just stop talking. You, you think a judge is just going to allow the government to bug an attorney client room in a prison without any evidence that maybe you were doing something wrong? I said, just shut up and walk away. This isn't about you. You know, we're trying to prevent this guy from dying in prison. And, you know, I understand you're upset, but you need to shut up and walk away. And, you know, it ended up incredibly that the tapes that were made by the government of John and Raybrook in the, not the attorney room, but when he was visiting with friends and family, that was bugged as well. They were the tapes that helped save John from a conviction as they supported our defense that he wanted out of the mafia and that he had left. The tapes to me were gold. And they were gold for the defense and not for the government, incredibly rare at the time, and certainly something that the government never expected or anticipated. Now, 
back to the El Chapo, Joaquin Guzman story, how he came to hire me. Now, there's a backstory to this, as I had promised, of course. It's 2014, and I'm contacted by the family of an inmate who was cooperating with the government against the Sinaloa cartel. His name was Margarito Flores. This is all public record now. He was cooperating in Chicago in a federal case, or out of there, federal cases there and other places in the country, for many years by the time he came to find me. <clears throat> all he wanted from me, all the family wanted, it wasn't even him, I heard from the family, is they wanted me to simply review some of the matters at the end of the, the case before he was sentenced. This, again, was in 2014. I had a very minor role in the case, and I met with the client once and spoke to him a number of times. Nice guy. You know, he was a, a twin, an identical twin. I don't, I don't know that he knew that he was identical, but when I saw the brother, they were identical. And that was something that uh, was interesting to me because I have identical twins. Now, Margarito was alleged to be a very significant cooperator for the Sinaloa cartel. And while Chapo Guzman was allegedly the leader of the cartel, he was in Mexico at this time. He was in prison. And no one ever expected him to be extradited to America at the time. You have to remember back then, he's doing God knows how many years in the Mexican prison. He was a very high profile prisoner in Mexico. Nobody thought for a second that the Mexicans would ever let them, let him out of their sight. But the client, as I said, who I was representing now, Margarita, was cooperating along with his twin brother, Pedro. They were originally from Chicago, and they got involved dealing drugs for the Sinaloa cartel in Chicago, but eventually fled to Mexico as the story went, according to the government, to avoid being arrested here. They both were very high up, as I said, in the cartel, and according to the government, they had major access to El Chapo, and they were cooperating since like 2008 against the cartel members. And these were people that were already brought to America, the cartel members um, on extradition, and they all had pending cases. And all of this, again, is public record. But before they fled to Mexico to the, come to the U.S. to cooperate, they had made tapes, according to the government, of conversations between them and El Chapo. And some of these tapes made it into El Chapo's trial that when I represented him. And Margarito, my client, didn't testify, but Pedro, his brother, his twin, did testify during that case. But again, I wasn't involved when the cooperation started or even during 95% of it for Margarito Flores. I was just there at the very end regarding some sentencing issues. It really was nothing with nothing. But during the brief period I was representing Margarito, I spoke to the prosecutors in Chicago about El Chapo. Because obviously, he was the biggest fish in the Sinaloa cartel, according to the feds. And during my discussions with those Chicago federal prosecutors, I asked them if they expected that Chapo would ever be brought back here to face the many charges that he had here in multiple federal districts. And I guess my thinking was, well, if somehow Chapo gets brought here, if I'm representing someone, Margarito Flores, who would be testifying against him, that would disqualify me from ever representing Chapo. You can't represent a cooperator who's testifying against your own client. And that's the obvious conflict of interest. Now, I do remember thinking this because that's why I asked about it. Now, I don't, didn't mean to be presumptuous that I thought that Chapo would ever want to hire me if he was ever brought here, you know, to face the charges here. But part of being a trial lawyer is that you really are delusional. I mean, tremendously delusional at times. And you just, everything crosses your mind. 
So I'm thinking, why am I getting involved in this very minor representation of Margarito Flores if it could cost me the chance to represent El Chapo down the line? This is what I'm thinking. This is like the biggest drug dealer in the history of the world, according to the government. And, you know, it might be something I'd be very interested in, I'm thinking. Again, this was a really remote possibility because Chapo was still in Mexico. The prosecutors here are telling me there's no way he's going to be brought here. And who the hell even knows whether the guy even, even knows who I am or would ever want me to represent him. So this was just so uh, pie in the sky. And, you know, I think the reason why the belief was that he wouldn't be brought here, Chapo, was that it would just be too much of a circus. He had escaped prison in Mexico. He was so high profile. He's just too important to Mexico, and they would never let him out of their grasp. So I forgot about it, and Margarito Flores was sentenced to uh, sentenced about nine months later at the beginning of 2015. I wasn't even present at the sentence. I was just giving advice from afar. But here's the interesting part about this. The government was very concerned that not only were the Flores twins in danger due to their cooperation against the Sinaloa cartel, of which... Obviously, Joaquin Guzman, according to them, headed, but they were afraid that the Flores twins' lawyers' lives were in danger. They felt that we could get killed just for representing them, which is really crazy. I I had never heard of anything like this before as a defense lawyer, and really serious precautions were taken. Now, this is public record now, but... When lawyers were making your, when you make your notice of appearance into a federal case, you file what's uh, called a notice of appearance. It's a form which announces you're representing so and so in a case and it's filed publicly. It can be found in the paper court files, but it can also be found in the online docket sheet for the case, which anyone could have access to. You can find out who's representing who in any federal case. So in this case, Not only were none of the lawyers told to put their notices of appearance in for either Flores' brother, the government told us not to. But when the lawyers had to appear in court, the press was told not to print the names of the lawyers. The courtroom sketch artists could not draw the lawyers' faces. The courtroom stenographer, who was writing up the transcript, could not include the lawyers' names on the transcript. The lawyers needed to be hidden completely. I've never had that happen in a case before or after my brief representation of Margarito Flores, but it was chilling, as you can imagine. My initial thought was, you know, is this like crazy overkill? You know, you tell me. When it was reported in 2009 that the Flores brothers were cooperating against Chapo and the Sinaloa cartel, Their father, who was also a drug dealer, went back to Mexico, and he was warned not to go because of his son's cooperation. But in his mind, I suppose he was a drug dealer. He wasn't cooperating, and I guess that's what he thought, that he'd be safe. He felt that he had nothing to worry about, and he was very, very wrong. When he arrived in Mexico, he was kidnapped, and on his car's windshield was a note, and the note said, shut up or we'll send you his head. That was obviously a message to the twins to keep their mouth shut. Now, this is the government story. This is what I was told. It's very chilling. The father of the Flores twins was never heard from again. So that was why no one was allowed to find out that I was representing Margarito Flores. 
And I didn't think anything about it. He was sentenced at the beginning of 2015, probably for a couple of years. And my representation, as I said, was a secret, which was good for me because I wanted to live. And then all of a sudden, in early 2017, the world hears that Joaquin Guzman is being extradited to Brooklyn to face federal criminal charges there. This is January of 2017. And I presume that he already had defense lawyers lined up because, you know, he's Joaquin Guzman and the government claims that he's just so powerful. Well, lo and behold, he's represented by public defenders, federal defenders at his initial court appearance. But I presumed he'd have, you know, his family find him top New York attorneys and he would switch to them. And I mean, this is like the most legendary criminal or so the media had led us to believe. I mean, this is El Chapo, for God's sake, right? Well, still, he's got his public defenders, but then out of the blue, a few weeks later, in January still, a call comes after he arrives in New York, and I received the call from Jerry Shargell. Now, this is what I mentioned last week or a couple of weeks ago who he was, my old mentor, my boss, my friend, my father in this business. The federal public defenders were giving Chapo names. They were suggesting names of private counsel for him, and they had given Chapo our names. And Chapo obviously wanted private lawyers at this point. Now, Jerry and I had worked many big cases together when I was a very young lawyer, so it wasn't all that surprising that we would be going in together. We had done, you know, as I said, many high-profile cases. Jerry had represented Sammy Gravano during the Gotti Gotti Sr. trials uh, before he flipped became a cooperator and other countless other big cases. And me, I was a younger, angrier version of Jerry with many high-profile trials in my own right. So we were curious about Chapo. That was our, our thinking at the time. I mean, who wouldn't be? I mean, this was the most legendary drug dealer, according to the media, to the government. So we were like, hell, let's go visit him. And there was only one problem that I had that I didn't tell anybody at this point. I had represented one of the cooperators responsible for Chapo being indicted, for Chapo being extradited to America, and could be responsible for Chapo spending the rest of his life in jail. That was Margarito Flores. I didn't tell Jerry at the beginning, and I didn't want to tell Chapo because, (laughs) for obvious reasons, but I really had no choice. Because of the conflict of interest, that I had, it wouldn't be easy for me to be able to represent Chapo after my brief representation of Margarito Flores. And it would come out publicly, obviously, at last. I wouldn't be able to keep this quiet if I was going to try to come into this case. But I would have to agree not to cross-examine Margarito if, in fact, the government decided to use him as a witness against Chapo at the trial. I couldn't use anything that I learned from Margarito Flores to help in the cross-examination if somebody else was going to do it, assuming that the government was even going to call Margarito Flores. And, you know, during this upcoming meeting that I was about to have with Chapo, my thought was, well, if, if Chapo didn't like me, it's not like every person that interviews me wants to hire me as his lawyer. If he didn't like me, if he decided that he wasn't interested in moving forward with me as his lawyer, I would just never tell him about Margarito Flores about my representation of him. I mean, I didn't want to die. I didn't know who this guy was, Chapo. I didn't know him at all. And I figured he might get very, very, very pissed. After all, there was a reason why the government would not let the lawyers, and I, again, was not the only lawyer for Flores. There was a reason why they didn't want our names getting out. 
because Chapo, according to the government, kills the attorneys of his enemies. So I figured, well, I'll just keep my mouth shut and let's just see how the first meeting goes. You know, most likely, he's not going to like me. I mean, although I am incredibly charming and funny, attractive, all that, dress well, maybe he just decided I wasn't his cup of tea and it would never have to come out. So Jerry and I went to go see him and we needed an interpreter because my Spanish is awful. I only took four years in high school and another year in college and I basically can say, estoy muy cansado. That means I'm very tired. That's, that's pretty much the limit of my Spanish. Oh, and also, hola, que tal? I said that to Chapo 4,000 times, and we both laughed every time I said it because that was the beginning and end of my Spanish to him every time I went to see him. So we had to go to the 10 South floor of the MCC, the Metropolitan Correctional Center, which is like the worst prison in New York, <clears throat> maybe in America. It's now been closed for months after Jeff Epstein killed himself there. But 10 South was the floor where they housed the terrorists. It's the worst of the worst. It's solitary confinement. Inmates do not get to see other inmates there. You can't meet your client in an attorney-client room on 10 South. There are none. The regular attorney-client meeting rooms in the MCC are just regular rooms. You walk into, they're on the, they were on the third floor, and there's just, you open up the door, there's a big table there, and you both sit at the table and you shoot the shit. <clears throat> on 10 South, it doesn't, doesn't have that. It's a special floor. You get brought into a tiny room to meet with clients. And as I said, unlike the regular attorney meeting rooms at the MCC, this one has glass in the middle of the room. You get put on one side, the inmate gets put on the other side, and then you are locked into that room. You can't get up and go to the bathroom because there are no bathrooms on that floor. <clears throat> There's no vending machines. You're stuck until you pound on the door and then the guards have to open it to let you out. And half the time, they're either asleep, they're watching TV, they're eating breakfast, whatever the hell it is that uh, prison guards do. It's certainly not paying attention, I can tell you that. And Jeffrey Epstein can also tell you that if he could. Now, our side of the room is tiny because the room was split into two. One side is the inmate alone. The other side, the same size, is me stuffed in there with Jerry and our interpreter. <clears throat> so we were, you know, really, it was stuffed in there pretty good, and we were going to be there for three hours. Chapo comes in, and he looks friendly. I have to say, he had a hopeful face. He was in an orange jumpsuit, not a large guy, little guy, dark black hair, very dark eyes, and he didn't speak any English at all. But he had, this was a guy who's already been in jail for a month or two, I guess, in America. He wasn't allowed to have any conversations with any inmates. He only could speak to the uh, jailers, the guards, and God knows they probably didn't speak any Spanish. But he still appeared pretty calm when you consider that he was in a pretty disgusting situation there. And we start talking to him through the translator, which is a little bit it's a little bit uncomfortable because it's not a free-flowing conversation. Every sentence you say has to be translated. Then he responds in Spanish and has to get translated back. But it was very clear he was interested in meeting new lawyers, but he was not there to mess around. Now, I'm not going to go into what we discussed because that's privileged. But the entire time in the back of my mind, I'm thinking about Margarito Flores, my former client who's partly responsible for putting Chapo in this cage. <clears throat> and I also thought I have to tell Chapo at some point if this continues to work out. 
and it had gone pretty well. It was going pretty well, but I would only tell him if he was serious about hiring us. And I had no idea what his reaction would be. As I said, the government told me that he kills lawyers and, you know, no one on the planet knew I represented one of the guys that put him in there. And there was a reason, as I said. The three hours with Chapo really flew by, is is what I will say. We really hit it off. And in the first meeting, we learned a couple of things about each other, which delighted both of us. One was that we both had twins. We did. And that their birthdays were one day apart. True story. Oh, and the other thing that we had in common is we both had a massive love for guns. Massive. That's for another day. Anyway. I didn't tell him about my representation of Margarito Flores, not yet. I figured, you know, we'll set up another meeting and let's see how it goes. I knew I had to tell him, but I just was, I just was dreading it. So after that meeting, Jerry decided he didn't want to undertake the case with me because he was getting ready to retire. And this was just such a monster endeavor. And it really broke my heart in a way because since I stopped working for Jerry, in, I suppose, 1999. The last trial I did with him was in, in January of 1999. Uh, this is now 2017. And in 1999, I was a kid. I was just out of law school a few years. And now at this point, I'm a pretty good trial lawyer. And to be able to try a case like this with Jerry would have been not only the highlight of my career, but you know maybe the highlight of my life. That's how important it was to me, and and it really broke my heart, but I completely understood why Jerry at his age and all the miles he had put on doing this, he just didn't want to get involved with this. It's just just too much. It was too much. So I went to go see Chapo the second time alone with the interpreter, and the Chapo always asked how Jerry was. I mean, for the next two years, every time I would see him, he'd tell me to say hi to Jerry. That's the kind of guy he was. Really. (laughs) believe it or not. So the three hours flew by again. That was the amount of time we were allowed to see him from 6 to 9 p.m. And I had a sense near the end of the second meeting that he perhaps wanted to hire me. And I felt I I needed to let him know about Margarito Flores before he became too comfortable with me. Now, he's seeing dozens of lawyers. I still don't know whether he was going to hire me. But I felt that I couldn't let it go any further without me telling him because I didn't want to waste his time. He may have just decided he wanted nothing to do with me because of that, and I had to spit it out. I I really didn't have a choice. So when he learned, as I thought, about Margarito Flores, he may just change his mind. And, you know, as I said, he may be pissed if I told him in the fifth or sixth meeting. So in the last 20 minutes or so of our meeting, I finally screwed up the courage And I told them this story, that a few years ago, I was contacted to represent someone who was cooperating with the government. Didn't give him any more details than that. And it was at the very end of his case, but I still agreed to represent him. The government would not let me put my name into the public record representing this man. They felt that the people that he was cooperating against were too violent and could kill not just the cooperating witness, but me and my family if they learned my identity, meaning the people that my client was cooperating against. The government, as I said to Chapo, told me that they had, uh, that, that the head of this group was so dangerous that he routinely killed lawyers. And oftentimes it was done to send a message to their clients who might want to cooperate. 
and that I couldn't tell anyone if I was representing this person. I had to keep it quiet. No one could find out. And I told Chapo, all of this was highly unusual, that in my entire career, this had never happened before or after. Never. And as I'm telling him this story, he's just sitting there. He's just transfixed, listening to the story. Eyes were just burning on me. And it was like I was telling like a bedtime story. He was interested. And then I had to start telling him the bad part. And I finally said, the client that I was representing, who the government warned me about, was cooperating against you. And you were the person the government said would kill me if you learned this information. And I'm taking a chance with you by telling you this. I'm also asking that you take a chance with me to hire me and trust me with your life because right now I'm trusting you with my life and the life of my family. And he just sat there with his mouth open a little bit at the end of this. He hadn't said a word during the, during the entire story, which was about 20 minutes or so. He just took it all in very calmly, listened, shook his head up and down at the end, was quiet. I looked at him right in the eyes. I didn't take my eyes off of him. And all he said was, thank you for telling me that. At that point, he told me that he wanted me to be the lead lawyer of his case. So it was a risk. It was a risk. But I had to do it. I had no choice ethically. I had to tell him. I could have not gone to see him. He never would have found out that I represented Margarito Flores. But I had to tell him. Now, I never told him at that time who the client was that was cooperating against him. He could have figured it out on his own. I didn't know. I didn't want to reveal the name until he officially hired me and the court was required to have a hearing, which would announce that conflict that I had previously previously represented Margarito Flores, who was now cooperating against the current hopeful client of mine, Chapo. At that point, it's called the Curcio hearing. The court, the judge in open court, requires the defendant, Chapo, to waive any conflict of interest in order for me to be able to be hired in the case. He basically has to understand that I can't cross-examine Margarito Flores if uh, the government decides to call him. And in fact, he did uh, make that waiver. And Margarito Flores, of course, was not called to testify against Chapo Guzman. But his twin was, Pedro, and the government, out of an abundance of caution, I don't know why, because I had never spoken to Pedro Flores, never had met him, required me to not to agree not to cross-examine him either. I guess they figured identical twins, twins, whatever, that their stories were the same, and me representing one was like representing the other. But that's how I came about to represent Chapo Guzman. It was a risk that I took, a real risk. Hopefully, in my mind, it was going to be worth the risk and he wasn't going to get angry. Again, everything I knew about him was based on what the government had told me and what I read in the media. I had no idea by me telling him this whether the government's concerns were real, that it could cost me my life. But I did. All's well that ends well. These are the kind of things that happen in the day-to-day of being a criminal defense lawyer. Probably doesn't sound a lot like your job, but this is, this is what it is. Next week on our podcast, on our fourth episode, I'm going to talk about a time that a client came to me, was about to be deported if he was convicted of drugs and, and uh, gun charges that he had faced. But due to a very dishonest and incompetent prior lawyer that he had, I ended up using it and turning that representation, that poor representation, into a gift of a deal. 
The client got a very low deal and didn't get deported. I'll explain all that. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. You can find me on Spotify. You can find me on Apple Podcasts. You can find me on Amazon. You can find me on Google. Go to beyondthelegallimit.com. Listen, send me feedback. You can email me. Let me know what you think of the show. And if you have any topics you want me to go with. Thanks for listening.